Now, we aren't called to believe that we have to jump across the gap on skyscrapers, so any of you young guys that think that's what you're gonna do. And also, the theology here's a little wacky, like we're supposed to believe in God, and they get their power from like freeing their minds, so a little different, but anyway, that's besides the point. But we're called to believe in something important, something I think that we have possibly lost the significance of, and that is, really core to what we believe as Christians, that Jesus is the Christ, and that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the long-awaited one that the world was waiting for, that Jesus is our Lord. He's our boss. And that this, at its most basic element, means that we are just supposed to submit to Him and live for His will. And when we truly make that jump into believing those things, it changes everything. But we often just take our beliefs and we just intellectualize them. And we have discussions about them, if we even do that. And we don't allow them to change a single thing about the way we live. You know, James fought about this practice in his letter. He said, I'll show you my faith by my works. And he said that faith without works is dead. Having mental thoughts and living them out, what I call like a pseudo-faith, pseudo-beliefs, isn't just a problem with our time. It was a problem even when the New Testament was being written, as we see with James addressing it. There has always been a tendency, and we fall prey to this, to want an easy faith, a faith without works, a faith where we don't have to change, a faith where we get everything we want. I think a lot of churches are filled with people who don't allow the faith they claim to believe to then influence the way they actually live that they don't allow that faith to truly transform them. Christians who need to give up their whole life to the call of Jesus. And we stand at that spiritual opportunity. And God knows that we can make that jump and He will help us do it. But instead, we fill our faith up with self-help thinking rather than Jesus' Lord thinking. It's the difference between a faith where I'm worried about what I can get and instead a faith about what I can give. In popular Christianity, if you've noticed this um, in my lifetime, and it may be different in some of your lifetimes, because some are older and some are younger, but popular Christianity has shifted from the point at which our most famous Christian in America was an evangelist named Billy Graham, and like he was the one people looked up to, and then it shifted to a psychologist, and then now it's shifted to the self-help teachers. And I think this big shift from evangelism being the focus that we celebrated to self-help being what we're focused on is to our detriment. Because I think God wants to save Christians from a self-help, self-focused, selfish mentality into something bigger and greater than the church is currently experiencing. There was a time when the world was first discovering the wonder of Jesus. And these people, like us today, were faced with what to believe when they saw Jesus. And although they didn't have the benefit that we have of being able to look through history and see all the great things, amongst some bad things, that Christians have done, but we're able to see how Christianity can change lives for the better. But we're going to peer into the, one of those moments that's recorded in the Gospels, an interesting story. The time that Jesus walked on water, and then upon seeing it, Peter had a big idea. 
And Peter answered him. This is when he sees him walking on water. He says, Lord, it is, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But then he saw the wind. He was afraid. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why do you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. And I don't want to criticize Peter here, because Peter actually got out on the water. I mean, true, he sunk. He had enough faith, though, to step out on the water. But the problem was that the wind scared him, and then that scaring caused him to doubt. But even when he failed, Jesus immediately, and I, I want us to focus on that idea, Jesus didn't say, hey, well, I'm going to let Peter sink a little bit and think about how his lack of faith caused a bunch of problems and he could have been walking on water, but I'm going to make a point to him. No, Jesus immediately, remember that phrase, because he immediately brought Peter back in. Peter had faith, Peter stepped out in faith, Peter had doubts, Peter suffered a little bit for that doubt, but Jesus immediately stepped in and helped but what I find interesting here, and maybe you've noticed this before, though, is that walking on water for Peter wasn't Jesus' idea. It was Peter's idea. And Jesus just played along. Peter sees Jesus walking on water. He's like, that's great. I'm going to do that. And he asks Jesus, hey, if that's you, you tell me to walk on the water, too. And Jesus says, okay, come. And Peter walks on the water. I love how God works that way with us. Like he, 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 he's a creator God, and he made us in his image in a way that we can join in on creating things too. And I think we forget that. And when we forget that, I think it hurts our prayer lives. But then we have in Matthew 16, so we're going to just follow this story through these chapters here in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 16, we have then the first declaration from a pers person in the book of Matthew that Jesus is the Christ. You know, they didn't wake up and say, Jesus is the Christ. They eventually realize it. And someone gets it for the first time. And that someone, again, is Peter. And it goes like this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Thank you for giving me my last name. <laughs> Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, God working with his people. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. We're taught in church leadership articles and church growth things, and I was reading some of them this week, and they're always discouraging to me. And we're taught in them that, you know, if we're going to reach people, we need to meet their felt needs. It's like the church has really bought into Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if it's a psychological thingy, and that we have to meet their felt needs in order to meet their spiritual needs. But I think we get it all wrong. And that is, if we actually help people meet their spiritual needs, then the felt needs will fall in the line. 
And I wonder if Jesus could even work in a setting where he has to pe meet people's felt needs. He was all about meeting their real needs. He would feed people on occasion. He would heal people. He would intervene on behalf of the poor and the widows and the children. But then he would get up and he would say unpopular things like, Go and sin no more. Stop worrying about your clothes or what tomorrow will bring. Just worry about the kingdom of God. And the real kicker, deny yourself and carry your cross. Because that's the point that's going to be made here in response to them acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ. So these guys recognize then that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus is like, I'm going to use this as a teachable moment to teach them what that means. If you think I'm the Christ, then this is what it's about. So then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And really, that's core of the gospel. You know, they acknowledge Jesus is the Messiah, and then Jesus talks about, well, if you think I'm the Messiah, then this is what it's mean, what it means. Deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your own life. And that's harsh. That's harsh good news. You want to find the purpose in your life that you were actually made for? Jesus is saying, then deny yourself. You want to find meaning? Then follow Jesus. You want to find the real purpose of life? Then lose your own life for His life. And all too often, I think, as church and as Christians, and when we're talking to people and trying to get them to accept Jesus or share the good news, we want to like win them over. Like We put on our huckster salesman hat, and we want to, like, you want to follow Jesus because it's great for you which it is, but Jesus emphasizes the cost of following him. We want to water down, make my life more of the American dream type of faith. Bless what I'm already doing, God. Bless my life in all the directions I've planned. But that isn't what Jesus delivered. He delivered an upside-down faith, one that was so different than the world around him. And I don't think human nature has changed all that much from the people that rejected Jesus in his time. Billy Graham had this quote in an article I read this week on regrets that he had. And they found some regrets that he had had in his ministry. And he said this, I came close to identifying the American way of life with the kingdom of God. Then I realized... God had called me to a higher kingdom than America, and I have tried to be faithful to my calling as a minister of the gospel. And we struggle with the same sort of struggle at times. And it may not be, our struggle may not be this specific one of maybe confusing the kingdom of God with the American way of life, although I do think there's many people in our community who need healed from that false thinking. But we often place other things that are not worthy of the position of God's kingdom higher than his kingdom. And this is something that Billy Graham recognized was a temptation in his own life. And I think we would all do well to recognize it's a temptation in our own lives. There's always things trying to tear our mind away from the things of God. And so, 
I don't want you to think that I'm just like passive aggressively attacking you on this. Let me just aggressively attack you. You need to work on this. I need to work on this. We all place things at times above God. And we need to live vigilant lives where we allow God to prompt us and show us what that is. Because at the end of the day, that isn't going to be fruitful and that's not going to help us be who He wants us to be. So you need to work on this. I need to work on this. Idols always creep up. And the dangerous idols are the ones we think are worthy. Idols we justify as placing above God. You know, nobody places an idol above God that they think is crappy. Idols sometimes that we confuse with being God things. And these idols will creep in and take over our lives if we're not vigilant. We often give things overly spiritual significance in order to justify their exalted place in our lives. Whether that's America, whether that's nature, whether that's family, whether that's miracles, or anything else. These are all good things. But the good things, we can appreciate and honor them, but we should never make them the God thing. We must beware that good things are the most dangerous thing, I think, to our faith. Because I see more people who claim to be Christian missing church, not because they're strung out on drugs or they're having orgies or they're addicted to porn or some other big sin. They miss church because of family or sports or entertainment or nature. And it's these good things that I think may be the most dangerous things to us experiencing the life God has for us. Because we won't find our purpose in life if we allow the good things to squelch out Jesus and his community. And then, I see it time and time again, people who just dabble their toe and then reject it because they really haven't jumped all in and experienced the real thing. We don't see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and so then we reject God, but maybe we just need to try to delve closer into God and allow our roots to grow and to be nourished because He won't fail to nourish us. And we won't see Jesus working in our lives the way we want Him to move if we aren't trying to push into Him. But that's not for us. Instead, we want to see God moving. We want to see God healing. We want to see broken lives be brought back together. We want to see the power of God rising from the most unlikely places and people. We want to see His kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. And that takes place only when we place ourselves in position to receive and then overflow. And I love the concept of overflowing. Because we don't want to pour out from an empty cup. But we want to overflow and this is kind of described by David in Psalm 23. He said, You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we probably could, most of us could say, like if I said, How does Psalm 23 begin? It begins with, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Or maybe if we put it a different way, instead of the familiar way that we have it memorized, that if we make the Lord our shepherd, we shall not want. It's about a complete paradigm shift, though. It's about taking that jump of faith. That's what conversion really is. It's about saying, Lord, I'm going to die to myself and live for you. That's why we're given the baptism imagery. 
That's his burial imagery and then rising again to a new life. And this isn't about perfection. None of us here are going to be perfect. But it's about position. The position of refusing to satisfy every desire of our flesh. The position of placing Jesus as our shepherd, the Lord, the Messiah, the boss of our life. It's not about perfection, but about placing ourselves in the right position. We need to be the good employee under the perfect boss. And no employee is perfect. But a good employee is trainable. The good employee, when they make a mistake, you can correct them and they get back up and do better. The good employee doesn't know everything, but they learn as they do their job. The good employee is teachable. The good employee doesn't just spend time thinking, well, I'm going to try to figure out a way to make profit on this on my own. But instead, they try to help their boss profit. And we are called to stop the rat race in this world and just seeking our own pleasure and our own benefit, our own happiness in a way, although we serve a boss who does like to bless us with those things. But instead of our own pleasure and benefit being sought, we live for God's glory and acclaim. And then the weird ironic thing is that when we place it in the right perspective, we get the other stuff. But instead of being a self-employed person promoting our own prosperity, Jesus has this different model of you be in his business and promote the kingdom of God. And we want people to know that God is great and it doesn't matter whether they think we are great. And that is what God's looking for. But with all that said, this is the challenge. Even if you consider yourself a Christian, which literally just means slave of the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, we can make faith about all the wrong things. And I think they, the danger for those of us who have been a Christian a while or have been a Christian our whole life is that we slowly learn religious justifications to go away from the radical, faithful following of Jesus. Instead, we are called to totally commit ourselves to following Him and bringing about His will, no matter what the cost. We're called to just worship Him and surrender to Him. We sell the faith, sometimes, unfortunately, especially in the modern self-help mindset of American Christianity, with the idea that following Jesus will make your life better. And in ways it does. But this can lead to just an adoption and an adaptation of the American mindset that we should just do what makes us happy. And we're trying to win people by appealing to that. And then that allows us to say things that make us happy must be from God, which then allows all sort of sin to creep into the church and Christian culture. But being a Christian isn't about buying a faith that a spiritual huckster is selling. Because this ignores these tough teachings that Jesus gave when they said that he was the Messiah. The idea of denying ourselves. It ignores what that results in, and that means resisting sin. And it just turns Jesus into a modern-day American self-help guru rather than a Savior who challenges us to move away from a dead life. Dallas Willard says this in the beginning of his book, Life Without Lack. One of the greatest needs today is for people to really see and really believe the things they already profess to see and believe. Knowing about things, knowing what they are, being able to identify them and say them, does not mean we actually believe them. 
When we truly believe what we profess, we are set to act as if it were true. And acting as if the things are true means, in turn, that we live as if they were so. We're called to live as if all the things we claim to believe are true. We live as if they're true. It reminds me of an old story that Soren Kierkegaard shared. He wrote a parable that I've shared before and will share again because I love this parable. It's entitled, Tame Geese, A Revivalistic Meditation. It is a story of a community of talking geese, you know, pretty realistic, who would gather together on Sunday mornings for the religious services. And he said this, The essential content of the sermon was, What a lofty destiny the geese had. What a high goal of the Creator. And every time this word was mentioned, the geese would curtsy and the ganders bowed their head. What a high goal the Creator had set before the geese. And then the preacher would go on. By the aid of wings, they could fly away to distant regions, blessed climes, where people were properly they were at home. For here they were only strangers. The geese were made to fly. And yet, they would hear this message, they would celebrate this message, they would give the amens at the right time during this message. The geese would get all out of their seats, and then they waddle home. Kierkegaard concluded the story with the phrase, Man also has wings. He has an imagination, yet we continue to waddle. We waddle when we are meant to fly. I think most of our issues, individually and as a church, are because we are religious about religion, but not passionate about Jesus. We have the right beliefs, but we just waddle when we're called to fly. And God has made us to passionately follow Him radically and not self-servingly, but to deny ourselves and just follow Him without abandon and care about ourselves, to seek His kingdom first, and yet we turn it all about ourselves. I want to continue with one thought. I remember sitting in a sermon in 2001, actually in Jackson, Michigan. Is that where you're from, Rich? Close. Close. <laughs> Just in the area? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in Jackson, Michigan, we were sitting in a church, and they showed this very same clip during that sermon. But at that time, Lindsay and I were beginning the process of planting a church in Lansing, Michigan. And so we were traveling around churches to see what other churches were doing. And that clip from the Matrix that I shared at the beginning was shown. And I found it a great encouragement that I'm called to make this jump. And it was a crazy jump because Lindsay was pregnant with Isaac and I had no job lined up. And here we go into Lansing to plant a church and I had no idea how it was even gonna happen. But that was our jump. But I don't know what jump God is challenging you to do today. And I would hate it if it was move away jump, but if that is it, be faithful to God. But say yes to that jump. And I think a lot of the times, we've already started the jump. Like we're on the water like Peter, and we just have to keep the faith too. It's not about maybe the initial moment of jumping. For some of us it might be. But for others of us, we've stepped out of that boat, we're standing on the water, and here comes something that makes us afraid. And instead of being faithful, we doubt. So maybe this is just more of an encouragement not to take the initial jump, but to continue. 
Because if you're giving your all for Jesus, He will honor that. Have faith. Don't doubt. If the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want. And when you doubt, like Peter did, life's over. It's all done. God will never use you again. Just kidding. You remember that word immediately. When you doubt and things stink, God is immediately there to help. Because you will fall at times. We all fall. We all have doubt. We all have moments of where we step out of God's faith. We have sin. And Jesus doesn't belittle us or scorn us. He might mock us about our little faith. But what he does then is he immediately helps. You just have to let him grab your arm and help you. You just have to let him forgive you. And then just let him help you back along. So I just pray that we can move out of just the selfish focus of the faith. May we move into a picture of bigger things of what God wants to do with us when we deny ourselves and we stop living for ourselves and we start living for Him. And may we accept the strength that He is willing to provide and allow that to happen in our lives. May we just live in a continual life of saying yes to God no matter what it is He calls us to. And then we wait expectantly to see what is in store for us and His people. And that will happen when we stop leaving church and continue to waddle, but instead start flying the way God wants us to fly. And then we just allow Him to guide us. May we see that in God and in our lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for, I don't know, Peter. I thank You for Peter, his zealous faith and his example of failing and your great love. And I just pray that you would, I don't know, maybe there's people here that need that help immediately. I pray that you would give them it. And I pray that you would help us all to take whatever jump or continue in that process that we're already on and not waver and not be discouraged, but that we would just keep going. And I pray that you would just bless the fruit of our labors as we try to faithfully honor you and we bumble and mess it all up and I just pray that you do great things with those mistakes in your son's name we pray